0: Hello, my name is Emily Lamb, and welcome to Sheep Thrills. This is episode 11, the Nintendog episode, Uh, and it is also the second-to-last episode of the semester. So, next week will be the last week of programming, um, and also the, 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 I don't know, season finale of Sheep Thrills. Um, So, I'm planning a really fun episode for next week, so make sure to tune in, um, and... Yeah, so today on the episode, we are going to be talking about the use of robotic technology uh, in policing. And I have my friend Jackson. I'm going to have a conversation with him as my resident STEM friend um, about what he thinks on that. We're also going to talk about the New York mayoral race, uh, which is happening this summer. We're going to talk about police violence. Um, And we are going to talk, of course, with our COVID corner, we are going to talk about some some important updates around the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. So, so first things first, I'm excited to introduce my friend Jackson uh, to talk a little bit about police technology. Okay, so the first thing that we have on the show today, I have my dear, my dear, dear friend Jackson with me, a longtime listener of the podcast, big fan, main critic, we love and support, Um, and he is my resident STEM friend. So I invited him along to uh, talk with me a little bit about some new innovations that have been happening with police technology um, and kind of where we see that going in the future. So first things first, Jackson, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Sure, why not? I'm Jackson, I'm a current high school senior, and in the fall I'll be attending Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, where I plan to double major in mechanical engineering and games and simulation arts and sciences. But all you really need to know about me is that, as Emily said, I'm her STEM friend.
0: Hell yeah, yeah. So going right into it, uh, as my resident STEM friend, we've all seen the past couple days um, a lot of videos and news on Twitter and elsewhere about the fact that the New York Police Department has deployed these like robotic dogs um, onto the streets of New York, kind of as like a preventative effort um, and as like an extra addition to their police force. So I was wondering what just generally your take is on the use of robotic technology in policing in general.
1: So in this specific instance, I don't think what you said is actually fully true. And a lot of people think that that's true and it's causing a lot of people getting really upset over something that isn't quite as bad as they think it is yet. I'm not saying that it can't end up in a full surveillance situation with robot dogs patrolling the streets, but I'm pretty sure, and I couldn't be wrong, but I believe they only have one at the moment. It's called the DigiDog is what they've named it, but it's just, um, a Boston Dynamic Spot model. And they have used it for some pretty cool things. They've had it for a few months now and they've used it in certain surveillance operations and certain hostage situations in order to prevent putting a police officer in a dangerous situation. Or in even one instance, they used it to deliver a pizza because they needed to get a pizza to someone and they didn't want an officer having that interaction so they use the robot dog to get the pizza to him that to me is super cool it shows all the stuff that you can use these things for and in terms of surveillance they're not really used sending the dog onto the street for surveillance it's not super practical for that they only have a battery life of about 90 minutes and in terms of surveillance that's something that could be handled through either more traditional cctv or um actual officers on the street because you need an officer controlling this at all times and so we're not quite in the dystopian future that many people think we are even though there's many um, comparisons to certain science fiction novels and movies and tv shows and such with that being said we also aren't that far off Um, technology like this can be improved pretty quickly the cameras on the spot are not that great but if you were to put a better camera you could pretty easily get facial recognition on there which there's loads of issue with facial recognition right now which is why it's starting to be used less in law enforcement it's been shown to be racist it's been shown to be wrong in some cases um so we're still steps away but there should be regulation put in place earlier as a preventative measure rather than Uh, a reactionary measure.
0: That's very interesting. I, I didn't, I didn't know that it had such a short battery life, which is definitely going to be an important like innovation that comes along, at least theoretically, if they continue to use this technology in this way, kind of seeing how they innovate those different things. So let's jump to talking a little bit more about Boston Dynamics as a company and kind of where it's been and where it's going. So as you know, this is something that maybe people don't know about me who are listening to this, who are people who go to my college. I used to be a STEM kid back in the day, as in a year ago, um, and I'm not anymore. So I personally, like when all the videos and everything came out around Boston Dynamics and around all their prototypes, it was something that was super exciting to me. And it's something that's like super exciting to a lot of different STEM people and people who are interested in robotics. Um, The interesting thing, thing about the company is that it used to kind of be focused mostly on research and now is kind of as, as we're talking about like transitioning into being used in more like practical settings. So my question for you, Jackson, is do you think that selling their technology to police forces or to militaries is like selling out? Or do you think that it's like a natural transition that was always going to come along? And do you think that it, it that has any impacts on like the preservation of, of innovation in America?
1: So, police forces and militaries have a lot more interest in this technology than Boston Dynamics does have interest in giving it to them. Um, I know there's lots of fear online and amongst the general public about these sorts of robots being weaponized. Um, Boston Dynamics has zero plans and has stated pretty explicitly that they don't want that to happen. And the only military military that has used one of these spot dogs was a training facility in, I believe France used it. And that robot was licensed from a different vendor. So, but Boston Dynamics was made aware of it, but they did not explicitly give them uh, that particular unit, which they used. And they used other robots there too. There are more robots, which are more specifically uh, military based and used for those sorts of applications, whereas Boston Dynamics spot is used mostly for uh, construction companies for like reconnaissance and um, scoping out areas or getting into areas where humans traditionally wouldn't fit. Um, In terms of selling this technology to police forces and militaries, I think it's something that's gonna happen no matter what. And if you don't sell them that technology, they're gonna do it on their own. They have the funds, they have a stupid amount of funds and they can kind of do what they want. Um, In terms of Boston Dynamics transition though, I think their transition from research to uh, making more products to sell is natural and in some ways necessary to keep the company afloat. They can only get so much funding from so many outside sources. They need their own source of income and Spot, I believe is their first robot that's retail. You can buy one if you want. You have to follow their terms and conditions pretty strictly. You can't do whatever you want with it. And they have the ability to remotely shut down any spot that is breaking those terms and conditions. So Boston Dynamics themselves regulate it fairly closely. But it's like I said before, in terms of this technology can escalate pretty quickly to become something that we don't want it to be. Um, But at the moment, we're pretty safe where we are.
0: So what's what's the likelihood that a technology like this can be like replicated by some third party? Like, are there similar technologies that are currently in the market that are more willing to kind of sell to militaries, sell to police forces? Um, or is this like technology just like very, very protected by BASA Dynamics?
1: So, yes, there, they do have competitors. Um, I don't remember the names of one, but I was reading about it a day or two ago. There, They do have a direct competitor who has a robot, which is similar to SPOT, which is more specifically intended for military and police use and has been given to militaries and police forces.
0: Yeah. So that that's very interesting because I think that that could definitely play another role as like as soon as the as soon as it's, that innovation starts up again and the, the market gets saturated by this technology then baby boston dynamics loses some of its its not credibility but loses some of its like autonomy over over controlling how that technology is is used and operated. So that's very interesting. So let's let's talk kind of more about like political implications of this technology. So we talked about the fact that there's technology exists. It's currently like in very, you know, very limited use, like in, you know, kind of violent situations. But do you think that the using this technology, as you said, which is kind of an inevitability in some ways, do you think that this is something that the American military or American police forces are going to be able to like get away with? Or do you think there's going to be such a strong, kind of uprising against that technology, that it's something that the the American police and American military end up scrapping?
1: I honestly could not say. I think military is gonna have an easier time doing what they want than police are because police are kind of under fire in our current political climate. I definitely think that's something that AOC pointed out in a tweet several months ago is that the NYPD getting one of these dogs Like why do they have it? That's $70,000. Even more than that, because you can see they have attachments, which cost another at least 30 K. Why are they spending it on a robot dog? That's done like three things. That's money that could be put towards education or uh, just the general benefit of the public. That's a lot of money. And it goes to show that these sorts of organizations have a lot of money to spend at their disposal. And that in my opinion is quite unfortunate. And so does the military, which I so often hear people complaining that NASA gets like a $500 million budget when our military gets a $500 billion budget. It's It doesn't make a lot of sense to me that they require that much money and can have these sorts of technologies, especially because they aren't really used all that much. Um, I think in terms of using this particular technology, Police forces aren't gonna use it all that much, I don't think. It's not gonna be a useful surveillance tool yet. It could get upgraded in certain ways, but at the moment, I don't see being all that practical. Military might use it a bit more for um, bomb searching, and that sort of like it, it would be a useful tool to have on a bomb defusal team. And they have similar, more humanoid-style robots that they use already. Um, And so I think there's definitely more military applications, because it's very useful for, um, like, as I don't want to use the term surveillance because that's not. We're talking about two different types of surveillance, but like reconnaissance, going out in the field, putting a robot in a situation where you don't want a human to be. That's really what their main purpose is.
0: Yeah, I think it's really, and and, you know exactly what you're talking about. You know, defund the police. That slogan, it means maybe the New York Police Department shouldn't have enough money to like buy a $70,000 robot dog that they're not really using at this point for any practical practical uses. I think that's very important. You know, the the debate around to fund the police is not something that we're like going to super get into, but definitely important to think about why they have all this disposable money that they can use and if it's being used for something that's like actually productive. So kind of, again, like broadening the conversation a little bit, the technology is there, the technology will be produced, the technology will like probably be used. It'll be used in some good ways, like in, like, as you said, like hostage situations or trying to find bombs, which is great. We obviously don't want humans to be put into those dangerous situations, but what do you think that either, you know, the local governments or state or federal government should be doing to make sure that this technology is regulated so that it doesn't end up kind of being more violent in the long run.
1: So I think the main important consideration in terms of this technology, which coincidentally is a similar concern in terms of guns, but we seem to throw that idea out the window. So I don't see this idea sticking around very often uh, or for very long. It comes down to who's getting this technology. Um, If malicious groups get this technology, it can be exploited pretty easily. And I think that, I believe, I can't say this for certain, but I believe Boston Dynamics has done a fairly good job making sure that spot is secure and if it's on patrol someone can't just go and like hijack it and then uh, make some modifications so that they can do whatever they want with it because that's just a free seventy thousand dollar robot that they could i don't know worst case scenario like strap a bomb to it and send it into a crowded area um so there are certain aspects in place to prevent that from happening from the technological side in terms of the government I struggle to see much happening soon, at least, because a lot of our uh, government officials are quite old and don't understand a lot of this technology. And a couple instances in which that has come to kind of bite us in the butt a little bit have been the push for encryption backdoors. Um, That's not so prominent right now as it was in 2016 when there was a case from uh, the FBI wanting access to a terrorist's iPhone and Apple saying no. And on at face value, that seems pretty bad because obviously you want that data to be able to, whatever they want to use it for. It's important to have data and evidence to prevent those sorts of things in the future. But creating a backdoor for the government, it creates all sorts of loopholes for uh, outside third party hacker groups, as well as as soon as the government wants to use that for surveillance, you now have no privacy. There's a bazillion reasons why that would be an awful thing. And a lot of our older government officials can't seem to grasp that concept. And um, similar with like right to repair legislation, which I think I actually got through. So excited about that, assuming that it did get through. Um, but in terms of technology, and even you can see the hearings with Google and Twitter recently lots of dumb questions being asked that make no sense and are not relevant whatsoever. So I don't see much happening anytime soon. But what really should get done is regulations on who can buy this sorts of technology, requiring certain limits on this technology to make sure that there is like some sort of override button to some extent. Um, and just general general limits to prevent full free reign because technology moves super, super fast. If it gets out of control, then there's not going to be a lot of easy stopping it. It's hard to backtrack.
0: Yeah. I, I think all the time about that hearing, the Facebook hearing with Mark Zuckerberg um, when I forget who it was, but they're like, well, how do you make money off this website? If you don't run ads, he was like um, you run ads. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not any kind of Zuckerberg fan, but that, yeah, we definitely have a gap in American politics right now between like the information that politicians need to know to be effective and the information that they do know to be that, you know, was effective back in the 50s when they were first elected. But that's a topic for another day. Um, This also kind of brings up an interesting um, conversation that the Biden administration's been having where they're going to try, I think they're not sure where they are in this process, uh, but they want to create another cabinet position um, of like a secretary of like science and technology and development, which obviously as we're seeing as all this technology is changing, would definitely be like a helpful position to be the one kind of running point on all of these issues. It's not something that we have now. Um, And like, you can kind of like put it under like infrastructure, which it is infrastructure in a lot of ways, but I think assigning one person to be in charge of, Like talking about all this technology and then and how it should be regulated would probably be a good a good decision agree or disagree on that
1: solid agree there needs to be more people in the government who understand the modern world and how it's changing in the 21st century as a result of technology boom the network boom and even stuff as simple as the implications of social media on younger generations there's Lots of more modern issues, and because technology moves so fast, it's developing and developing <laughs> uh, at a, at a rate that is unprecedented. And so, you need those sorts of officials to be able to keep up with that.
0: It's the the you know technological implications, and then also you know especially with social media, the economic implications and the social implications. It just like technology is a huge factor in all of our lives. And it's, it, it does, it does feel very dystopian. It's, we're getting to a point that's a little scary, you know, with the, you know, the global pandemic and the robot dogs and uh yeah. So hopefully, hopefully as we like move forward and as this administration kind of takes all of these concerns into consideration, we do start to move forward a little bit with having like larger conversations around technology and around regulation but we'll have to see we'll have to see how how those debates go in congress and you know everything like that moving forward all right is there anything else you would like to share or like to say on this topic before we wrap up
1: i would plug your podcast but i'm on your podcast so i can't really do that can i
0: look at that perfect all right well that is all from this. Our time, unfortunately, is up. But Jackson, thank you so much for coming in and chatting with me today about this topic. So happy to have you on the podcast and have a really smart science voice to come in and and you know share this information with us. So with that, we'll wrap up. Jackson, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much to Jackson for coming in and chatting with me. That was an amazing conversation, Um, a great friend, happy to have him on the show this week. So, now moving on from that, uh, we're going to be talking about the New York mayoral race, Um, and of course they have primaries over the summer on June 22nd, and then they have a general election on November 2nd, Um, but... As we know, just based off of uh, New York's demographics, it is likely going to be kind of whoever wins in the primary, the Democratic primary on June 22nd, they are likely going to be the winner of the race, although, of course, crazier things have happened than a Republican winning in New York City, I guess. But anyway, so there's uh, a lot to talk about with this race, um, and there's a lot to talk about with one specific candidate, who I'm sure you guys all know exactly what's coming with that. But regardless, so the first thing that's important to note is that this race has 21 candidates. It's like three Republicans and the rest are Democrats. So that's like an interesting breakdown. Um, But again, 21 candidates is such a huge field. Like, you know, they had 20 plus candidates in a presidential race and like that was hard to manage. I don't 21 candidates in a race for one city is so interesting and I don't know if it it's, it's interesting because I'm not sure whether it's a matter of kind of recent political events showing people that um, like anybody can run for office and anyone is qualified to run for office or, you know, I'm not sure if that's like a good thing or a bad thing. Like whether just unqualified people are running for office or whether people who are qualified who didn't think that they were qualified before are now, be, you know, being – you know, are now thinking that they are able to run for office. So people who are, you know, in community organizing positions or um, are not in like that traditional, you know, political science degree to law school to politician pipeline. Um, I think maybe there's just a more diversity there. So I think it's very interesting. And I think it definitely is very responsive to, you know, federal um, elections and, and national politics over the past couple of years. But regardless, 21 candidates. Which is a whole lot, um there's a couple important front runners who we need to talk about. the first, of course, kind of the 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 predominant front runner, although we'll talk about the fact that there kind of isn't a front runner right now, um is Andrew yang, whom we all know and either love or hate. There are very few like in between positions um and of course he ran for president um, in 2020 uh, on the Democratic ticket, did not win um. And now he's running for mayor. So it's it's very interesting. Uh, he's made a lot of interesting choices that we can talk about. But continuing on, the kind of second in line, although again, like, it's, whatever, the race is very still up for grabs, um, is Eric Adams, who's the Brooklyn Borough President. Um, and he's yeah, pretty solidly in second place, but it's still kind of a toss up. Um, and there's also Scott Stringer, who is the city comptroller, uh, Maya Wiley, who is former counsel to de Blasio and an MSNBC analyst, uh, and Diane Morales, who is a former New York City public school teacher and a community organizer and, um, you know, an executive of a nonprofit and a whole bunch of other things. Um, and I would say that those are kind of like the main names that you hear when you're thinking about this race. Um, and like Yang is widely considered to be the front runner, but... Wiley and Morales seem to have, like, the most grassroots support, which doesn't always actually translate into getting more votes, um, but it does often translate into having more volunteers and having more phone bankers and having having, um, more online support, having more name recognition. So it'll be interesting to see, especially because I think that Diane Morales has only picked up that grassroots support kind of semi-recently, that as more polls get taken, as we get closer to the primary to see what that name recognition and what that like, you know, Twitter support actually does to help her. So those are kind of the names of the big players. And then of course there's like fifteen other people who are running, um, who there's some Republicans, there's some Democrats, and they're kind of all over the place in terms of, of their um you know, what their backgrounds are. And I'll I'll post a, a link somewhere to all of the different candidates so you can read about all of them, but there's too many for me to talk about in this segment, so I'm not going to be doing that. Um, but the one that I will talk about is a candidate named Edward Cullen. And that's very important to me, that Andrew Yang is running against Edward Cullen to be mayor of New York. I I love that. I love that so much. And if I lived in New York, I'm not saying this for real because, you know, I, I think whatever, blah blah blah. It's important to like Vote for good people and do research and not vote for people based off of their names. But, I I might I might rank Edward Cullen up pretty high just just for the lulls, just for the jokes. I don't know. Um, so anyway, that's kind of the that's the field as it stands right now. Um, very big, very diverse, very complicated. Um, with a lot of people, a lot of different backgrounds. You know, Andrew Yang, um, is. The, you know, entrepreneur failed presidential race, like kind of coming in as his like second act. We have more traditional politicians like Eric Adams, and then again we have more like community organizer, um, more like grassroots people like Dia- Diane Morales. Um, so that's very interesting how diverse that field is. So going into polling, Yang is widely considered to be the front runner again. But the important thing to note in the two important things to note in this race, one is that because the field is so wide, there still isn 't a single candidate who 's like significantly risen above the rest um, like it really comes down to like you know a couple percentage points, which really isn 't enough to like safe- to safely allow one person to be the front runner um, and there 's a whole lot of undecideds. I think the article that I read said that there was like fifty percent of the voting population of New York is undecided, which is a huge amount of people for this race. Um, So it's really going to come down to, in the next several weeks, um, how people are actually able to engage those undecided voters um, and see if there can be any um, distance built up between candidates. And the other important thing to note is that there is ranked choice voting for this election. So They're allowed to rank their top five candidates, and then uh, there's, like, kind of a runoff system. Um, I, you know, if you want to look at, I don't, I didn't take math and politics, so I don't really, you know, I can't explain the math in any way that's eloquent, Um, but basically people will give you know, list out their top five choices, and then that's how they'll determine actually who the ultimate winner is. Um, so that's very important. A lot of people think that it's more democratic, um, because it's not just a winner-take-all system, especially in a, in a primary as wide as the this mayoral race. You know, there's people from across the political spectrum, so it's almost like there's people in multiple political parties within the Democratic Party that are running. Um, so I do think that that ranked choice voting and seeing who comes in first in the first round, who comes in first in the second round, uh, is going to be really indicative of, you know, the the, the the political temperature in New York. So that's another important thing to talk about. Um, ranked choice voting, huge pool of candidates, um, and obviously a whole lot of issues. Um, New York, I'm not sure exactly what the number is, I think I've talked about this before, but um, New York you know is is a major component a major uh, producer of like you know the country's entire gdp a lot of it is reliant on the business that goes on in new york city um and obviously covid took a major toll on um a lot of what's happening in in new york um businesses were widely shut down there's very few people who are commuting into the city um to work so we've got the entire like infrastructure transportation system including the subway system um that is currently you know running way way like like they're just not making enough money to actually sustain themselves and it was already a fairly broken system um so those two factors really are not looking good for the New York subway system. Um, And then there's also the fact of just businesses in general that are just closed um, in New York because they can't sustain themselves. So there's the internal um, economics of the city, and then there's the external economics. So the fact that more people aren't coming in, more people aren't going out, and it's less of like a hub because of COVID. So whoever wins this race is going to be adopting a city that um, really is going, isn't going is going to be in, like, dire need of recovery. So it's really important, like, to think about those issues, um, like, in terms of this race. So we see, again, someone like Eric Adams um, and, like, Diane Morales, who are kind of more, like, you know, like New York insiders who have done the work and been around um, and have been you know been on the ground before and then you see a candidate like Andrew yang who might have like you know quote unquote more unique ideas but does he have the actual New Yorker experience to be able to understand what New Yorkers actually need um, and that kind of leads into my next point which is just talking about the concept of Andrew Yang and I'm gonna preempt all of this by saying that my Parents met Andrew Yang last weekend, which is insane and makes me laugh just thinking about it. Um, and they, were because they live in New York right now and they were at Coney Island and they just happened to run into Andrew Yang. And they have this great picture and my dad is an Andrew Yang stan, which is very interesting if you know anything about my dad. Um, so that's, that's just to preempt all of this. I don't know, I don't, this is not, it's not important, it doesn't provide any context to this conversation, I just think it's important that you guys know that my parents are now like, best friends with Andrew Yang. Um, I say that extremely loosely, but also, Andrew Yang seems like the type to just like, befriend my crazy parents. Anyway, so, throughout this campaign, Andrew Yang has made a lot of interesting decisions he like the very beginning of his campaign like like the first 2 weeks he um did this whole bit about bodegas and how important bodegas are to the culture of um of new york city and how important they are to the, new, the you know the city's economy how important they are to you know building community um within the city and he, you know, tried to do this by going out to a bodega and being like, look at what I can buy at this bodega. Look how cool it is. And he, like, went to, like, a supermarket, which, it, you know, is not, is not a bodega. Uh, it was very, it's a very interesting choice right off the bat. And, you know, he kind of, I, sh- I shouldn't say he came under fire on social media, but I would say that there was a lot of people sharing it around and being like, oh, look at Andrew Yang. He's running for mayor of New York and he doesn't even know what a bodega is. And I think that there's, like, larger issues to think about in terms of this, but it was a very interesting, like, first choice that he made in this race, um, to just, like it's, there's a million bodegas in New York City, he could have easily found one that was, like, authentic looking, at least, um, and just done, just, just filmed his ad there, and I, I'm uncertain of why he made that specific decision, but that was just, like, the first in a long line of, like, weird choices that he made, um. One more recent weird choice that he made. Um, it was recently National Pet Day. And so Andrew Yang posted a picture of his old dog, Grizzly. And I, I can't find the post right now. I think he might have deleted it. And basically said, look at our old dog, Grizzly. We had to give him away because our dog was allergic. But like, we love you, Grizz. And it, it was it was a funny post. It was sweet. It was whatever. It just read so weird that like... it. It just, I can't even describe it, and I can't also describe the, the, everyone, because everyone on Twitter wasn't really genuinely angry about it, they were more just, you know, you don't have to post for every national day, that is not a thing that you have to do as a candidate, as a person, as a business, like, you just don't have to do it. So if you don't have, like, a really nice, heartwarming dog story, you don't have to post for National Dog Day, you just don't have to do it. And it just came across extremely weird. And I'm very sad that Andrew Yang and his family had to give up their dog and, you know, give it to another family because their son was allergic. It just, it didn't, it, it did not feel to me like something that he had to to put out. Like, he, he could have, you know, posted, oh, this is my old dog from when I was a kid or something like that. Um, But instead he kind of, like, opened himself up to... That like random like Twitter criticism, which again we don't know exactly what impact that kind of like Twitter silo has on um, actual policy at all, if any or like actual politics electoral or or otherwise, um, but I do think that it's important because I think that it's like a microcosm of what the public is thinking. And obviously, like, the political people that I follow are, like, a little bit in the weeds. I am in the weeds myself, as you can see, but I do think that it's, like, important to see how all of that relates together. So, that's, like, just some interesting choices that Andrew Yang made. However, I will will say this. I think that a lot of criticism of Andrew Yang is um, misguided. I think that he... Isn't I don't person I don't not that I am live in New York or have any kind of control over New York races. I don't personally think that Andrew Yang is the right person to um, be in this position. I just don't. I think that you need someone, especially in this, like, very tumultuous time for New York, you need someone who's been on the ground, you need someone who's been in community organizing, um, that's personally, like, a, a trait that I look for when I'm trying to look for who, who I'm voting for, especially on a local level, um, but I do think that some of the criticisms of Andrew Yang have been rooted in racism a little bit, and they've been rooted in, um, just like misinformation. Like people see one bad story and they just write him off completely, whereas some of his policies are pretty good. Not all of them. Some of the things that he talks about again are like very misguided, very weird, don't clearly don't like actually reflect um you know the what real New Yorkers are thinking about and what real New Yorkers want. However, I do think that it's important to like not just take the internet as it is. I think it's important to um you know, do your own research and see what these policies actually mean in, in the real world. But anyway, I just kind of wanted to talk about Andrew Yang because this post about his dog really made me laugh. And I think that it's going to be a very interesting race. And to see how all of these Democrats kind of reach for those undecideds over the next couple of weeks will be very interesting. Um, and we'll see if Andrew Yang comes out on top, which... I'm going to make my, this is this is my big pundit moment. I'm going to say that, yes, Andrew Yang is going to win this race. Um, and in the curse of most New York mayors, he's going to end up universally hated. So that's unfortunate for, for Andrew Yang, but we'll see how it goes. So uh, the next thing I want to talk about, just very briefly, uh, this is like a very distinct change in tone, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, so... We're just I just want to talk about all of the police violence that's happened over the past week. So um, as I talked about last week, um, the Derek Chauvin trial is still going on. Um, I think now they're in week three, I want to say. Um, I don't know when it's going to come to an end, um, but I just think that it's important, like I talked about last week, that we have this backdrop of the Derek Chauvin trial um, happening while all of this police violence has been going on as well. So in case you haven't been paying attention to the news, two really important events that happened um, over the past week, basically. Um, one was a a black man named Dante Wright uh, was shot in Minnesota and basically what happened was a female police officer which i want to talk about a little bit um mistook her um taser for like mistook her gun for her taser so she pulled out her weapon and attempted to tase him and actually ended up shooting and killing him uh which is horrifying to say the least and you know something uh, we a lot of activists have been talking about over the past i mean year and also the last forever has been um how terrible police training is and how um you know police are are not equipped to de-escalate situations, they're not equipped to handle situations in any way that's like appropriate, like they don't know how to appropriately respond to a situation. And I think this, this example completely shows exactly what we're talking about because it breaks off from the distinction that a lot of people make. Um, Because it's easy to make this distinction just because, you know, policing is a kind of male-dominated field. There's this association between um, police brutality and, like, toxic masculinity or things like that. Um, But it's clear because this was a female police officer um, that this is more rooted in the institutions of policing rather than in, you know, any institutions of, um, uh, you know gender or sex connotations i think that's i think that's a really important thing to talk about um is that it's it, this this example shows because it was a woman it shows that um this is this is an issue that is rooted in the actual training of police officers and is rooted in the institution of policing itself um and i think you know we can get into the conversation around getting rid of the police altogether and replacing it with a different kind of peacekeeping force. Uh, I don't really want to get into that whole conversation now, but I just wanted to outline that fact. And then the other event that happened was a, um, a a uniformed black US army soldier was basically pulled out of his car at a gas station um, and was pepper sprayed in Virginia um, this past week as well. So this this was someone in uniform a black man that was in uniform was pepper sprayed by the police, which, again, goes to the root of these issues, right? So people are always like, you know, back the blue, like respect the police, respect the military, blah, blah, blah. But then as soon as that military or as soon as the police is black, then there's a lot less support for those people. Um, And uh, I just think that's another really important thing to talk about. You know, I mentioned last week, what the impact of the Chauvin trial was going to be. And if he was and uh, being, you know, convicted, if that was going to just kind of be a pat on the back for the um, kind of police establishment, and then it would just kind of go on and be like, look, we put one bad cop in jail. So that means that all you know, we did it, we solved police brutality. I think what we can see is that that's not exactly the case. Even while this trial is going on, we see these examples of police brutality and the fact that the institution of policing is like inherently broken, like over and over and over again. And I just think that it's really upsetting that this, you know, this is a separate topic, but I just want to bring it up as well. It's just the issue of violence in this country is so bad. The fact that we had these two uh, instances of um police violence. And on top of that, there were two separate shootings in Tennessee this past week. Separate shootings. And that like, all of these things are going on at the same time. And it's just this constant influx of bad news and bad press for all of, um, you know, all of these different American political institutions. And it's, you know, the definition of insanity is doing something over and over and over again and expecting a different result. And I feel like we're really stuck in that right now um, in terms of, you know, violence in this country. If, you know, if guns protected people, if, you know, you know, you know, people kill people, guns don't kill people, but we still have all these guns on the street and we expect things to change. If we don't do anything, we don't change any policies to stop mass shootings from happening. They're going to keep happening, right? If we put one, um, bad cop in jail but we don't change any of the institutions that allowed for that cop to be in the position that he was in the first place guess what bad instances of policing are going to continue happening over and over and over again Right. We can't continue to do these like band-aid reform issue, reform efforts. We need to actually look at the root of these problems and look at the systemic causes of why mass shootings happen, of why police brutality happens, of why racism and, you know, classism and sexism exists in this country. And we need to actually worry about fixing those things, fixing those root issues as much as we possibly can. Otherwise, again, we're going to be continuing the cycle of just over and over and over again doing the same thing and being shocked and being surprised when instances of violence occur. And I, for one, am sick of it. And I'm sick of, I've mentioned this before in previous episodes, but I'm sick of being so desensitized to bad news. Uh, You know, I'm sick of seeing you know getting a news notification for an instance of police brutality and not even blinking at it like obviously it makes me upset and I read more and I I try to understand what actually happened in that situation but I'm not surprised anymore I'm not surprised I see news about a mass shooting and I'm not surprised you know I always think about this but I think about you know what you know radicalized me quote unquote was my sophomore year of high school when the Parkland shooting happened and I was on my you know I was on my phone during class or whatever and I saw that notification pop up that there was this mass shooting and I did not even think about it for one second I just said oh another shooting like that is just not the world that I should have had to grow up in it's not the world that I should have had to mature in and I'm thinking about all of these kids now um who are kind of even in a more transformative stage of their lives, seeing all of this violence all the time, especially, you know, black kids and other, you know, kids of other other races who are having to see this violence in the news all of the time and see people, you know, debate their human rights all of the time. Um, and that just makes me really upset because I don't think that it's healthy. I don't think that it's productive. And I think that we really need to take a strong look at these institutions and a strong look at Who is working so hard to uphold those institutions and ask them truly why? Why do you believe so strongly in these things? Um, And why do you want to maintain the status quo that is clearly, clearly killing people? And again, this goes into the same thing that I talk about like every week, um, we actually need to make sure that we're electing people who care about changing things because the status quo is not going to continue to work in this country. Um, And we need to strongly think about and consider where we are, where we want to go and who in politics is going to take us to that point. A little bit of a rant um, as always, but anyway, again, we'll see how all these things develop. And um, I think with the Chauvin trial, again, if for some ungodly reason he's acquitted, you know, seeing the impact of that is going to be really really important, but that's just this uh really important conversation that people have been having this week um and I think that it's an important conversation that I bring to this space. So uh, the next thing is COVID corner. We're here, we're back. We are you know, we're in April. We're almost to, you know, that May deadline um for The age for COVID vaccines going down to 16. I personally am chomping at the bit to get vaccinated. So everyone just manifest for me that I'm going to get vaccinated sooner rather than later. Um, But the big news that happened this week was that um, Johnson and Johnson, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, there were six reported cases of blood clotting out of like six or seven million doses administered. And so the FDA and the CDC was like, Oh, no, we can have that, we're actually going to pause the distribution of Johnson & Johnson vaccines, which is, there's so there's so many problems here. So number one, first off, I'm just going to say number one through number 10, I am not a medical professional. I am not, you know, I do not work for the FDA. I do not work for the CDC. Although LinkedIn did recommend to me an epidemiolo- epidemiologist job. So, you know, maybe that's what I'll end up doing this summer. Anyway, but Regardless, I am not a medical professional. This is just like my personal political opinion um, and also like based off the, you know, limited medical knowledge that I do have. So first of all, with the blood clotting, I understand there being concern. I understand there being a want to like stop for a second and think about what's going on. Except for the fact that it's six people, six individual cases of blood clotting out of like seven million. Again, seven million vaccines. That is such a small percentage that I can't even wrap my mind around it. And so there's that on top of the fact that um, there's so many different things that the FDA just approves and is like good, great, good to go that are have a, such a higher risk of blood clotting, including by the way. And I'm not saying that the FDA like you know approved this, but Having COVID gives you a much higher risk of blood clotting than the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, most of the, or not most of, but some of the um, birth control methods that are like fully approved and encouraged by the FDA also. Are, have a high risk for blood clotting because of, um, you know, it's a hormonally based birth control. Um, and it, so it causes blood clotting. And those are things that are like promoted and encouraged by, you know, by the government and by different agencies. Um, so it just seems ridiculous to me that they would pull this vaccine off the shelf when there's things that they are continuing to promote that have a much higher risk of blood clotting also just purely from a like a policy standpoint there's already been so much indecision and so much fear around the vaccine um that you know people are concerned about um about how safe it is and about whether it's worth the risk of just getting covid and not getting vaccinated and all these different things and you see you know especially you know i've talked about this before but you know it's it's older conservative white men who are like, oh, the vaccine, it's not safe. I'm not going to get it, whatever. So we see all of this indecision. We see all of this misinformation about the vaccine. And then the CDC and the FDA is going to pull the vaccine over six cases of blood clotting and just throw all of this um, fear onto the vaccine again. Um, just I think as we were starting to, people were starting to warm up to the idea and they were starting to get a lot more comfortable with the idea of this vaccine working and bringing cases down and whatever. I just think that it's such a huge mistake that they um, are are creating this this sense of fear about something that's not gonna happen. No vaccine is perfect. You know, we, I always talk about the the flu vaccine or the flu shot and how everyone says, oh, well, you know, the flu The flu shot didn't work for me one year, so I never get it again. It's like, you know, the way that the flu shot works is that they have to predict what strain of the flu is going to be present in that flu season. And then you, you know, you create the, the flu shot based on that. And sometimes they predict wrong and blah, 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 so on. So no vaccine is going to be perfect. No vaccine is going to work 100% of the time. And there might be side effects. So people who have gotten the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine have had some bad side effects. Um, But just because people are getting side effects doesn't mean that they aren't protected from COVID. Um, And I just, I can't, I'm so frustrated that they are creating this, all of this fear around the vaccine. um, And that, you know, even if they bring Johnson & Johnson back, they might not be able to get people to take those vaccines, and then all of these vaccines are going to go to waste. Um, and that could be an important thing for the international community as well. If the if people are seeing the American government stopping, um, you know, to stopping admi- administration of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, then that might be something that the other countries decide to do as well. And then, you know, how are we slowing down vaccine distribution? Um, and how is that going to impact the, you know? The, the future of the pandemic, and is that going to prolong the pandemic longer than it has to be, um, even when there's just, there's so few reported cases of bad instances. So that's my little spiel for this COVID corner. something that's very frustrating to me, although, of course, as I always say, more information will come out, um, and we will learn more about what happened and whether it's a bigger issue than we actually um, received information on going down the line. So last story that I'm going to cover today. It's my insane story of the week. Very fun, very exciting. So you guys remember the boat that was stuck in the Suez Canal? Because I sure do. It's my favorite. I love that boat so much. It's my favorite boat. Um, Well, the boat is stuck again, kind of. So as we know, when the boat was stuck in the Suez Canal, it was you know, halting like 10% of global trade. So they people lost a lot of money because of the boat stuck in the Suez Canal. And they, they equated it to like several, I don't know exactly what the number is, but like a lot of money. They equated it to a lot of money that this boat held up. And so um, there's different organizations that are claiming that the owners of the boat that was stuck in the Suez Canal actually owes them a lot of money. So right now the boat is just like floating out in the sea until the owners of the boat pay off that money. So the the boat isn't really stuck, but it's just hanging out because um, they need to pay off this like huge amount of money because of the fact that the boat was um, blocking ten percent of global trade. I I really feel for the captain of the Suez Canal boat. I I think that he or she, I'm not sure, really just wants to go home and retire and never get on a boat again, because I cannot imagine the trauma of being known forever and always as the captain of the Suez Canal boat. I just, it's astonishing. But anyway, that's just a little fun story that I wanted to tell you. I feel very deeply about the Suez Canal boat, and I just, I just, I just, you know, I wish it the best. I wish it safe travels, safe travels in the future. But with that, that is it for me uh, on this episode of Sheep Thrills. Again, next week is the semester finale. It's the last week of programming. I am really, really excited for next week. Um, and again, thank you guys so much for listening, and I hope you have an amazing week. Talk to you later.